I've never been crypto enthusiast. I never believed it till this summer. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got a really fascinating interview. I am joined by Alex Gladstein and Yaroslav Likachevsky. I hope I pronounced that right. He is from Bisol, and we're going to be talking about how in Belarus they're using Bitcoin to support activists. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. So first up today, we have Casa, who are without doubt the best in Bitcoin security. Now listen, have you checked them out yet? What's going on with your Bitcoin security? Are you secure in your Bitcoin? Are you comfortable with your security practices? Now, a couple of months ago, I was a little bit concerned about mine. I hadn't done anything for a couple of months I was just using a single hardware wallet and I was always worried, well, mainly about me just messing it up myself. So I reached out to Casa and I said, listen, I'm going to become a customer. How do we do this? Now, with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failure, and so much more. And Casa has a product for every type of Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you can get triple the security of a hardware wallet and it's only going to cost you $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 3 or 5 multi-sig, which is the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and it comes at a really great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full badass offering. You get their customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. Now, there is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, my other sponsor, sportsbet.io, the best in online gaming. And with the football back, the Premier League back, all European leagues back, it is great to see how Sportsbet are supporting football. Not only did they go out and become the shirt sponsor of Southampton and put a Bitcoin logo on their shirt, but they also became the official betting partner of Arsenal. Now, Sportsbet loves Bitcoin, and they're going to do everything they can to promote Bitcoin, and they're putting it in front of football fans all around the world. And with football back on the TV, there's no better time to have a bet on your favourite team. Sadly, Liverpool got smashed this week. Really disappointing. So I hope you didn't have a bet on them. But they've always got promotions for you football fans. You can find out more by heading over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. Sportsbet.io is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. And also, let's talk about lease authority. Now, this one is for you techies out there. Those of you who are building and creating the applications... Least Authority is a security consulting company who are pushing the limits of how to build privacy-respecting solutions. They specialize in security audits, design specification reviews, and security by design. And they can help you improve the security of your wallet application, key management solution, layer 2 protocol, P2P network design, user cryptography, and so much more. Do you want to boost your security strategy? Well, you can get a free, no-obligation call to find out how Least Authority can help you on your next project. Just head over to their website, hit the schedule a call button, and that's at leastauthority.com. That is L-E-A-S-T-A-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. Okay, so onto the show today, and look, this one is a fascinating show. This is what Bitcoin is about. I've got Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation. You know him. He's been on the show a bunch of times before. And I'm also joined by Yaroslav Likacheski. God, I really hope I pronounced that right. My apologies if I didn't. Anyway, if you haven't seen what's going on in Belarus right now, there are wide-scale protests as the recent presidential elections in early August, well, they were most likely, in all probability, rigged. The official results of the elections were a landslide victory for President Alexander Lukashenko, an authoritarian leader who's been in charge since 1994. Now, following separation from the Soviet Union and becoming independence, 
any president was meant to be limited to two terms in the constitution, but Lukashenko changed this. He fought to change this, and he has just become a dictator ever since. It has been widely reported that the recent elections were rigged with Lukashenko claiming 80% of the ballot. Yet, rightful leader Svetlana Tikhonovskaya has claimed that she had 60 to 70% of vote, and she is now in exile in Lithuania. Now, the Human Rights Foundation have set up the Belarus Solidarity Fund, which is using Bitcoin to support the democratic movement in Belarus. What protesters are doing is trying to attack the state infrastructure by striking. Yet, if they're striking, they're not earning money and they need to live. What Bitcoin is being used is to send money directly into Belarus to supplement these lost wages. It really is an amazing project. We always hear about how Bitcoin can be used to fight oppression and persecution, and this is a perfect example. So I asked Alex and Yaroslav to come on the show, walk me through what is happening in Belarus, and explain how Bitcoin is helping. But also Yaroslav explains some of the history of Belarus, what has happened in the government, how Lukashenko has become a dictator over the last few decades. So I hope you enjoy this one. It's a very important show. If you do have any questions, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, if you want to support what's happening, please do check out the show notes. A link to what Bysel is doing is there. Also, outside of this, the third episode of my series about Ghislaine Maxwell, the ex-partner of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein, is available on Defiance. Just head over to defiance.news to check that out. Outside of that, have a great week, and I'll see you all soon. Alex, good to see you. How are you? Great to see you, Peter. Doing well. Good, good. Um, Yaroslav, nice to meet you. Um, got a fascinating... Yeah, likewise, Peter. It's a fascinating story to talk about. I spoke to Alex about it the other day. Um, so, look, I think a really good starting point before we get into what's been happening, how people have been using Bitcoin in Belarus, is get a real good understanding of what's been going on in the country and a bit of a history of the politics, just so we can fully understand the the situation you're in right now so as a starting point can you just explain to me a little bit of the history of belarus can you talk to me about the independence and how um the constitution came about what actually happened with the constitution what was in it before we start talking about how you've essentially now have a dictator in the country um yeah so uh, the history is quite long but the last time uh, we uh, received uh, independence was uh, 1991 after Soviet Union collapsed, uh, and like all of the former Soviet states uh, became independent. It was a Belarusian constitution made during the first years of um, sovereign country. They've started working on the constitution 1991, finished 1994. And uh, by this constitution, uh, it's supposed to be presidential and uh, parliament republic, and the first president had to be elected. So 1994, we had our first uh, president election took place, where the guy named Alexander Lukashenko won uh, this election. And then very shortly during the next two years, uh, he redesigned constitution uh, as he wanted it to be. So he increased presidential power a lot uh, and Belarus became full presidential republic with the minor power of uh, the parliament. Then... He started ruling just on his own. 
in early 2000, it, it was probably 2001, he changed the constitution again, uh, which allowed him to be re-elected as many times as he wants. Uh, so here we are now, 26 years, having the same guy ruling the country, which obviously uh, brings everything to quite depressed condition, and also economics and uh, all the stuff around the country. Alex, just flipping over to you quickly, in terms of what Lukashenko did in changing it from a two-term uh, constitution to essentially allowing him to be re-elected as often as possible. How typical is this of uh, an authoritarian to campaign on a like, populist ideology and end up en- ending up becoming a dictator? It, it feels like you know I have a limited exposure to dictators through the work you've done and you've exposed me to, but it just feels like a very typical journey. Yeah, historically, it's, it's right out of the dictator's playbook. You know, you see the same thing across the world in different regions where you have a independence hero who you know comes to power as a result of either decolonization uh, or you know the defeat of some sort of foreign power? Um, Robert Mugabe is a great example. Fidel Castro is a great example, and Lukashenko is a great example. They campaign and publicize themselves as the people's hero that they're going to save the country. And there are a lot of true believers at the beginning. Usually, uh, Hugo Chavez is another good example. Um, you know, of somebody who came to power and maybe had a lot of popularity, authentic popularity at the beginning, right? Um, but then over time, they dismantle uh, the court system, the free press, they get rid of uh, any sort of like business or oligarchic competitors, they establish political prisons. Uh, you're watching this happen, of course, in Turkey as well, and many other places. So I would say it's quite typical, and Lukashenko has orchestrated it, you know, almost uh, perfectly according to the, the dictator's playbook. And now he faces the biggest test of his rule, obviously, uh, since, since establishing power in 1994. And it is incredible to see the bravery of the Belarusian people stand up and say, we've had enough. Yeah. Yaroslav, I've been following it on the news. I've been following the protests and the thuggery uh, of the, the, the police and yeah, Lukashenko's thugs. But I wanted to ask, if he's had six terms, there's a lot of protests now. I don't remember on any of his previous elections seeing any protests. I don't actually, I can't recall previous elections. So on his third, fourth or fifth term, was there, did anything similar happen? Something similar, but not that massive as it is this time. So um, there were huge protests during the 90s. Uh, when he'd been trying to merge uh, back Belarus and Russia together and build this common state, as, as they call it. So there, there were huge protests, and the, uh, it stopped uh, the process of uh, re-merging. Uh, then he won election 2001 quite clear. So there were few protests. On 2006, uh, there were protests, they were quite big and uh, they've been lasting for at least a couple of weeks. Um, Belarusians uh, were inspired by an example of Ukrainian people who've won their first Maidan in 2004. 
and we've tried to do to do the same uh, in Belarus. I was 19 years old then, so I, I can remember it clearly. Uh, then there were huge protests uh, after the election in 2010 in December, but it was cracked down uh, in one night. So it was a quite brutal crackdown by special police forces. Um, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people came into the streets, but like it was completely smashed. And then 2015, uh, there were no protests, again, because uh, of the Ukrainian story, but this time it worked vice versa, because everyone was completely terrified by perspective of having war with Russia and Putin. That's why uh, 2015 went calm uh, and like, no one wanted to, to try to get rid of the Lukashenko because everyone was afraid of Putin. But yeah, this year, um, some, something amazing happens. Okay, we'll come on to this election. Just one more thing with relation to Russia. What is the dynamics of the relationship with Russia? Because it seems quite complex. I've read about the attempts to reunify, but then I've also read about Lukashenko also having a fragile relationship with Putin. But at the moment, I've also seen that Putin is offering security to the Belarusians. What, what is? How does the relationship work? And also, what kind of? What is the size of the Russian population that still lists, lives in Belarus, and how influential are they? First of all, I have to say that's the game of two grandpa dictators, and both of them hate each other. Because the only goal for Lukashenko back in the 90s was to be president in Russia and sit in Kremlin. So that, that was his major goal. Uh, and he made all of this friendship with Yeltsin at the time just to replace him in Kremlin. But when Putin took over power in Russia, they broke up ugly and uh, they never been friends since then uh, so they're supporting each other uh, because they need each other if putin loses lukashenko he most likely loses belarus and he lost ukraine already and he lost georgia and he wants to be an emperor and uh, collect back russian empire uh, in borders of soviet union so he's doing his best to keep all together here. Uh, at the same time, uh, Lukashenko is miserable uh, in economics. So he cannot uh, feed himself. And uh, then he needs Putin to ask money uh, over and over again. On the other hand, if Belarusians can get rid of Lukashenko, then Russian people will see that it's possible to get rid of Putin because they're acting quite the same. Putin just started six years later than Lukashenko. So they're following with some delay. This year, uh, Putin have done exactly the same that Lukashenko have done 2001. Uh, he allowed himself to be reelected uh, as much as he wants. 
Uh, yeah, they, they, they have to support each other, uh, but they don't like each other. And uh, they're talking about uh, common state, uh, and Putin wants to to build a common state uh, with Belarus, uh, but Lukashenko knows uh, the moment it happens, he loses all of his power here, and then uh, he's out of game. Mm, about yeah, about Russian population, you've asked. Yeah, it's relatively small because. On one hand, we're very close to Russians culturally and uh, we're speaking the same language, despite the fact that we have our own language. Uh, all of the population in Belarus speaks Russian. Uh, lots of people know both of languages, but like everyone knows Russian. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there's a strong point for Belarus uh, because all of the Russians are integrating in Belarusian society very quickly uh, and they're just becoming Belarusians. We had another uh, national statistics check last year uh, and uh, I think it's less than 5% of uh, people who made themselves uh, Russians. Okay. Alex, obviously the work with the Human Rights Foundation, so much of it is focused on uh, authoritarian regimes and um you've taught me so much about it how much was belarus on your radar before the elections um i've noticed that lukashenko described himself has described his leadership as authoritarian but how much was he uh, on the hrs radar and were you concerned in the build-up to the election well he was always a major focus for us especially before this populist wave in eastern europe a few years ago where you started seeing authoritarian sort of relapse in Hungary, in Poland. He was often, you know, he was called, Lukashenko was called Europe's last dictator and one of the very few kind of Stalinist kind of um, remnants from the Soviet Union era. And the political climate was always known to be the worst in Europe from a democracy perspective. And we worked uh, for years with political prisoners who had been jailed and tortured, some had been killed, and we had helped get their story out. But Belarus was never a sexy topic. Um, it was never, you know, something that was able to conjure the world's attention. It didn't have terrorism or oil. And, you know, he, he was very much, uh, I think Lukashenko was very smart about uh, keeping a low profile uh, internationally so he could sort of continue to repress at home. I think something that's worth repeating uh, is that was just mentioned was sort of this economic relationship with Russia as well, which, which as an international community, we've noticed obviously is that Putin props up uh, uh, Lukashenko. And, you know, just a few weeks ago, you know, it was, it was made public that, that Putin had ordered all these state controlled banks in Russia to kind of extend their lifeline to Belarus and try to keep it afloat. Because he knows that's sort of the last straw, right? If if uh, Lukashenko cannot keep the economy afloat, then then he will he will crumble. So we've been paying attention to both the political and economic uh, situation there, and this is certainly unprecedented. What's what's been amazing to observe from our perspective is the democracy movement. Um, oftentimes, it is not peaceful in different countries. Oftentimes, it gets co opted by extremists. You saw this happen across the Middle East, for example, often tragically. 
um, oftentimes it gets quashed immediately. Here in Belarus, we're seeing something fairly unprecedented where it has remained almost entirely peaceful and where the people just continue to march every day despite getting arrested, tortured, imprisoned, and everything's on video. So there are all these incredible, I mean, Belarus is a very connected country. So you're watching live a revolution happen and you're watching people getting sucked into secret police cars at the same time as you're seeing people get the shit kicked out of them on the street. And then you're seeing the next day, a hundred thousand people come back out on the streets. And it's amazing to watch women being like a huge presence in this. And obviously the, uh, you know, legitimate rule, you know, the legitimate elected ruler of Belarus is, is at the moment, you know, a woman and, and women are kind of leading this revolution in many ways. So it's, it's just been uh, really interesting for us to watch and we're doing whatever we can to support the movement. Yeah, Yaroslav, I'm, I'm not going to attempt to say her surname, but we're talking about Svetlana. Uh, can you just pronounce her name for me? Svetlana... Tsikhanovskaya. Yeah, I'll, I'll stick with Svetlana. Um, could you, just <laughs> just so people were uh, uh, listening and understand, just the background to her candidacy, because there's an interesting background with her husband, right, who also himself had an interesting background. Yeah, uh, so I guess she never planned to be a political person at all, uh, not like having an elected president. Her husband uh, was a small entrepreneur in Belarus, and he'd been trying to build his own business and um, buy some real estate. Uh, and he had lots of problems with local authorities because because of the bureaucracy working uh, ugly and... Uh, corruption and that kind of stuff so he just took uh, a mobile phone or camera and started uh, driving around the country uh, and uh, giving people like a free mic and asking them what do they feel how do they live uh, what kind of problems they have and then he made quite properly youtube channel uh, just sharing these videos with uh, regular people people on the streets and uh, he became so popular that uh, at some point he decided uh, to become a, a candidate on presidential election. Uh, and um, he's been beating on the same uh, target audience that was very loyal to Lukashenko through all of these years. And Lukashenko been frightened as shit uh, that uh, this simple guy from uh, out of nowhere uh, can beat him uh, and he just thrown him into jail and uh, while he'd been in jail uh, the, the guy's name is Sergei Tikhanovsky uh, his wife Svetlana uh, just came to submit the application uh, in the central Ex election committee and uh, they they told her like no uh, you cannot submit his application he has to he has to do it on his own okay well but he's in prison sorry Svetlana that's the life he cannot be a candidate anymore as he is in prison she went back home and came back like in a couple of hours and said okay then I'll take his I'll take his place. Uh, and I'll take part in this presidential race. So that's the beginning of the story, basically. Although uh, Lukashenko wasn't happy, right? Is, am I right in saying he 
said Belarus isn't ready for a female leader. Lukashenko is uh, uh, very conservative and he's extremely sexist. Uh, so he could never believe that women could beat him. That's, that's why he thrown in prison all of the alternative candidates except her, uh, just because she's a woman. Uh, and she, he, he thought that uh, it wouldn't be a problem for him to, to, to win versus woman. And that, that was his biggest mistake, I guess. Yeah. Alex, how much do we know about the elections? Um, I've seen Lukashenko claim he received 80% of the vote. And I've also seen Svetlana claim she received up to 70% of the vote. How much do we actually know? Well, it's it's difficult to have a uh, full understanding because it's a police state and the press continues to get literally imprisoned and any independent outlets are getting their licenses taken away. So it's hard to have like a clear picture. But from what we can see from observers uh, who are independent and obviously on the pro-democracy camp, you know, Svetlana was winning certain pre- certain areas by a landslide. And then those areas came back in the official uh, results as, you know, the opposite outcome where Lukashenko won it in a landslide. So there's just outright rigging across the country. And, he, you know, it really looked like from a legitimate point, and, and I'm sure Yaroslav has a better estimate than me, but it really looked like she she won. And in, in reality, he comes out and, you know, he's the 80% victor. So it's a total uh, rigging of the election uh, from our perspective. Yaroslav, is, is that true? Was there a general feeling across the country that she was winning and there was like a huge surprise when it was announced it was Lukashenko or or was it a case that you expected Lukashenko to do this? No, like that's exactly why people came out on the streets and people uh, came out on strikes all around the country uh, because uh, all of the numbers and we we've done pretty good homework so we've built lots of uh, digital instruments to to calculate the votes on our own. Uh, so we've built our own tool. So we we get numbers there around sixty five percent for Svetlana. We we've built another uh, solution to actually calculate uh, votes on uh, polling stations. And we had more than a million uh, out of uh, seven million voters uh, took part uh, and registered uh, in in this uh, application. Uh, And uh, there Svetlana won by far uh, more than 80%. But of course, most of this audience uh, was uh, democratically oriented. Uh, And we collected all of the official results from all of the polling stations. Uh, And uh, there were quite a lot of stations where Svetlana officially won. There were uh, quite a lot of stations uh, where Lukashenko officially won. But most of the stations, I guess uh, 60 to 70%, they never showed uh, original uh, official results. Uh, just because, uh, like, you know, um, they have these committees that have to put their signatures uh, and then they can publish a uh, final protocol. 
So uh, there were huge fights uh, inside of these committees, uh, and they uh, did not have a quorum to put enough signatures, and that's why they couldn't um, show final protocols. Uh, so uh, legally, um, th th this uh, this election um, uh, failed. And yeah, uh, counting all of the numbers, we can say that Svetlana won this election by far. Yeah, I mean, there, there's just, just to point out, there's like tons of evidence of whistleblowers who are in charge of reporting the vote, uh, being, at, being approached by government authority figures and being asked to falsify the numbers. And then these people resigning and saying, I'm not going to do it. And those people have gone and talked to the press about this. So the, this right. isn't just... Uh, right. This is like a comic amount of vote rigging that has happened. Yeah, and uh, like uh, they were called to come on a polling stations wearing white bracelets, just simple white bracelets, and like pretty all of the people that came for vote have been wearing this. Uh, so it was quite obvious during the, the main voting day that Svetlana is winning by far. Uh, that's why... Uh, when the next day Lukashenko announced he's won by um, 80%, um, hundreds and thousands of people came out on the streets uh, and then all of this violence started. Um, as I understand it, Svetlana's in Vilnius in Lithuania at the moment. What, what, is, right. the, what, what is the current status or what is the current situation right now? Like uh, legally or yeah, legally. Okay, in Belarus, legally, Lukashenko won. Okay, because there no law working at the moment in Belarus, and uh, Lukashenko is under law in the country. So legally, he proclaimed himself uh, as the new president. Uh, it happened um, a week ago. And uh, that, that's the status in Belarus. Uh, the same um, time, uh, most of the European countries and US and Canada, they uh, do not recognize Lukashenko as elected leader. Uh, and they're making statements that, um, that the election failed. So um, he's not a president for international society anymore. Uh, in uh, like Svetlana yesterday have met with Emmanuel Macron, uh, the president of France. Next Tuesday or Monday, I don't remember, Svetlana is meeting with um, um, Frau Merkel uh, in Berlin. And so we can see the European leaders meet in Svetlana instead of uh, Alexander Lukashenko. Uh, though uh, we cannot legally uh, declare Svetlana as the president because legal election failed. And um, we're building political weight, and political weight around Svetlana and pressure uh, around uh, Alexander Lukashenko to transfer power in the country from Lukashenko to Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. 
Okay. Alex, are there any good examples of similar situations where an authoritarian has stolen power, as Lukashenko has here, and protests have led to them being overthrown? Well, uh, a good example is one that you and I are uh, quite familiar with that happened last year in Bolivia. Uh, there's mm-hmm. still a transition, of course, happening, but there you had a strong man who, again, was popular in the beginning, won an election in Evo Morales, won another election, and then tried to change the rules so he could rule forever and did change those rules. And the people on the fourth time he tried to get reelected came out on the streets in the hundreds of thousands, even the millions. And he was forced out and uh, he's gone now. And there's a transitional you know, government. Um, it's not been easy. It's been violent. It's been difficult. But that is a pretty clear uh, example of, of, of this people power being successful. I mean, you saw the same thing um, to, a, to an even more effective degree happen in the early 2000s in Serbia, uh, where the people uh, came out on the streets for uh, months and months uh, in the summer and fall 2000. And, and eventually by October, they were able to force out Slobodan Milosevic. And, and he left in that country. Took a took a turn for democracy, um, so you know there's a, there's a track record of this happening um, in in quite a few places around the world. Okay, right. Let's talk a little bit about the protests, Yaroslav. Can can you talk about the kind of numbers that have been coming onto the streets and the tactics of the protesters? Um, a couple of things I'd noticed. I'd seen. Um, I seen these front lines of women who are essentially building chains to protect the protesters. Um, can you talk about some of the things that's been happening? On, on, uh, on the, the biggest marches uh, happens on Sunday. On September, there were Sundays when been calculated over 300,000 people in Minsk out of 2 million population. And uh, the same as more all around the country. Tactics of the protester depends a lot on tactics of the police forces. In August, it all started uh, very brutal. And uh, afterwards, protests, protesters, they, they've been trying to avoid um, straight physical contact with, uh, with the police forces because uh, it was quite hard and police forces have uh, been in full ammunition uh, and it it been exhausting uh, if protesters n- not fighting with them uh, but just driving them around the city. It's difficult for them physically uh, to, to move and run around the city in full equipment uh, when it's 30 plus degrees heat. So last weeks, uh, if uh, during the first uh, marches, uh, all of the people have been gathering together uh, in the city center, and then moving there, moving from there somewhere. Uh, that was nice uh, from perspective of counting them, but lately uh, they've they've changed tactics. 
they've started uh, they've been starting their marches um, from uh, from suburbs from neighborhoods moving to the city center and then uh, police uh, have been blocking roads and they have to move the other way around so there are like lots of people all, all around the city uh, moving here and there blocking the roads marching with flags and banners and that kind of stuff but now it's more difficult to to calculate them but we see that uh, it's it's been uh, it's going to be two months soon already but people keep uh, coming out on the streets more cruel police acts uh, more people came uh, out on the streets and alex mentioned it already uh, the protest is very peaceful so uh, we have seen some episodes when people have been protecting themselves physically from police forces but people never attack uh, police forces first which quite awesome from my perspective um, because that's demoralizing uh, police forces a lot uh, they are not sure anymore uh, that they have to continue their job uh, at the same time people are striking on um, big uh, enterprises that are owned by the state as Lukashenko have been trying to control everything in the country and more than 80 percent of big enterprises are controlled by state uh, and that builds huge economical pressure and lukashenko doesn't know what to do with it because he's trying to uh, deal with it again with special police forces and send them to to plants and mines and um he's trying to make people work well we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because the um the strikes what's happened is obviously the connection to the story is very interesting but just a couple of questions before we get into that um i was in uh, santiago in chile uh, a while back for the protest there and that was a, a real um opportunity for a lot of women to come out the streets and protest and it was a real revolution for the women with, within the protest as well it was like a separate movement um, it sounds like that's a very similar. Essentially, as, as Svetlana, as she essentially liberated Belarusian women in in a certain way. Yeah, uh, it's uh, quite a lot uh, women revolution, because even during the election campaign, uh, there were th three major um, candidates: uh, Sergei Tikhanovsky, Viktor Babarika, and uh, Valery Tsipkala. And uh, two of them have uh, been thrown to prison. And Valery, uh, he had to leave the country. Uh, and then all of their um, initiative groups uh, merged together. Uh, and they've built one big um, headquarters. Uh, and there were uh, three... Uh, women uh, in head of, of all of this. Svetlana herself, uh, wife of Valery Tsipkala, um, Veronika Tsipkala, uh, and head of uh, Babarika's headquarter, Maria Kalesnikova, 
who is in prison now. Uh, and uh, there were three women's faces leading all of the campaign. Obviously, lots of other Belarusian women supported this movement, uh, and they've been very active uh, on the streets during the protests. And as, uh, again, Lukashenko is a huge sexist, his police forces have been dealing brutally with men, um, but never touched women. And it worked for quite a long time. Uh, on Sundays, we have common marches. Uh, on Saturdays, we have women-only marches. They're also huge. And and uh, sometimes it was funny because during the common marches, there are some kind of tactics uh, and plan. During the women's marches, they just move in that direction. Then they change in their minds and move in, in the opposite direction. So police forces never knew where to block roads and what to do with them. But they never touched them physically uh, till... Uh, two weeks ago, I guess. Uh, then they, they've, they've started um, capturing uh, women also, so now they're right. thinking how to change the tactics. And yeah, women often uh, have been protecting their men and it worked till lately. So yeah, that's that's very interesting moment also. Okay. Just one more question, then I've got a couple more for Alex, then we'll get on to the, the strikes in detail. Does Lukashenko have much support, and are there any uh, protests in opposition to your protests? I don't think that Lukashenko himself has uh, much support. There are a group of Belarusian citizens uh, that support in Lukashenko. It's impossible that he had no, no support at all. But we had a mem that he has three uh, percent of of support around the country. During the election campaign, it wasn't true. He had from twelve to twenty percent of supporters for sure. Uh, but after the violence, he started on the streets. Uh, it fell down dramatically. But he built the system. That's uh, that afraid uh, that afraid is afraid a lot of uh, any kind of changes, because this system uh, hate uncertainty. They don't know uh, what could happen next if anything changes. So the system tries uh, to keep status quo, and that that's why lots of officials, uh, police forces. Uh, they're trying to freeze situation and keep it as it is. But I don't believe that these people support Lukashenko uh, in their hearts. Um, they just don't know that there could be a, an alternative and they can be free and live in a democratic state and um, do some private business or some arts or something create something um that that's something they have to discover yet okay alex um your team must be monitoring what's happening um in terms of uh, arrests the the thuggery of lukashenko 
police force. I've noticed I did see videos of people getting snatched off the streets. How typical is is what they're doing? Is there anything uh, particularly concerning? Yeah, I mean, there's horrific torture. I mean, the uh, graphic videos and images that are available for all, all of us to look at uh, as a, as a result of social media are sickening. I mean, there are men, women uh, of all you know ages and professions being you know beaten to the brink of death and then just sort of released. I mean, the, there are people who are being released in a condition where every inch of their body is bruised and broken. Um, and the government, as um, Yaroslav is saying, is is is. As they get more desperate, they get more violent. This is uh, something that you see generally uh, as, as revolutions wear on. And they weren't going to touch the women before, and now they are, right? And, and it only gets worse from here. So the commitment to peace is critical. You know, um, the, it, it is much, much more likely for a revolution to, to work if it remains peaceful than if it goes violent. Um, the success rate, uh, based on an analysis of more than 100 uh, I think actually more than 300 kind of people's movements over the last hundred years uh, basically says that uh, nonviolent movements are just much more likely to succeed. So we'll have to see. It's it's a big moment here, but um, we can expect the regime to get more violent as we move forward. Next up, I talked to Alex and Yaroslav more about Belarus and Bitcoin. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Kraken which is the best place for buying and selling Bitcoin. It's also the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. You know why? Well, a couple of things. Firstly, they're consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Security is really important with me, and I trust Kraken that no dirty hacker is going to get in there and steal my Bitcoin. Also, they do have the best in class in customer service. This is no question. So whatever issue you have, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to help you get it sorted. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, you just want to buy some Bitcoin, they've got every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you head over to Kraken.com, it could not be easy to sign up and start buying Bitcoin. They also got this beautiful mobile first app called Kraken Pro, where you can buy Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trade and futures and OTC desk, Kraken has got every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com or download the app. It's available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, let's talk about BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. You know what? The now of Bitcoin and financial services. You know why? Because BlockFi are providing the financial services that you need with your Bitcoin. Now, with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning interest on your Bitcoin. I am. I'm a customer. I have been for over a year, and I've received over a Bitcoin in interest now, which is pretty amazing. Also, using your Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan, and you can fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with your BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. With so much more coming this year, it's going to be a massive year for the company. If you're interested in checking BlockFi out, I recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Right, so let's get on to the interesting stuff about Bitcoin because obviously that's what the show is about. Um, I, I obviously wanted to learn about the the current situation there because I think it's important people, for people to listen to this. But how did you two become connected, Alex, um, involved in what's happening? Sure. Well, for background, you know, HRF has, again, for more than a decade, been working with Belarusian opposition leaders, Belarusian democracy activists, and there's 
there's definitely two generations here. There's an older generation of people who are 50, 60, 70 years old who have been fighting Lukashenko for decades. And most of them have, obviously, if they are active, they have escaped. So they live in Western European countries or they live in Poland, uh, Britain, Germany. And we've been supporting them and we've been working with them and giving them platforms to speak. But something different has happened here where you not only have the activity of the older generation, but you have a, a new, younger generation of Belarusians who are in Canada, America, Europe, but also, of course, obviously out on the streets being very active and they have a different way of approaching things. And I think the two together are very powerful in terms of traditional tactics plus new tactics. And what we're watching now where uh, Yaroslav and his colleagues are basically building with their BISOL organization, a support network for people who are striking is really smart um, and strikes right to the heart of what is keeping Lukashenko alive here, uh, which is, you know, the state run economy. And, you know, the way we met is through uh, a popular software company called PandaDoc based, you know, partly in Belarus and partly in San Francisco. And uh, the creator of PandaDoc, the CEO, Makita, uh, want, you know, got in touch with HRF. He wanted to support what was happening there. And we teamed up to raise some money, several hundred thousand dollars uh, to support BISOL and other organizations. And some of that money is obviously, as we'll describe, is being directly given to Belarusians who are striking um, in the form of, of, of Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yaroslav, can you just explain who BISOL are? Uh, to keep long story short, it's uh, Belarus Solidarity Foundation. So uh, the, the, there have been several um, movements in Belarus during this year. Uh, the first one uh, called by COVID-19. During the first wave of COVID, um, uh, Mr. Lukashenko ignored the threat completely and um, he uh, didn't manage to supply hospitals with the basic protection uh, like uh, face masks uh, and uh, protection costumes and, uh, I don't know, ultraviolet lamps so um, there were a civil movement to to supply um, hospitals with that and as my company is the tech med tech company uh, we've got uh, doctors working all around uh, the, the city in, in Minsk so we've been supplying them uh, with the protection and working together with the COVID uh, by COVID then uh, the other initiative came up, uh, it, it calls by help. When the election campaign started, lots of people been uh, imprisoned and, um, and they got penalties. Uh, and then uh, they've been injured uh, during the protests. So by help initiative help uh, these kind of people. Uh, and like that's pretty the same people uh, running these initiatives. And uh, after the election, I've been involved since by COVID. Uh, and after the elections, uh, we've uh, seen that we'll have quite a lot of people been fired because of their political position. Uh, we'll have quite a, a lot of people striking and uh, losing their livings. 
and we decided to establish uh, the, the third foundation, uh, Solidarity Foundation, uh, to support uh, this, this kind of people who are uh, economically repressed. So, yeah, basically we're helping people who've been fired because of their political position. We are helping um, people who are leaving their um, state service uh, because they don't want to commit uh, crimes. Uh, they, they don't want to be the hands that a regime commit crimes with. And they're usually uh, some uh, mid authorities uh, or um, some police officers. And the third category, uh, we are supporting uh, people who are on strike uh, on uh, state-owned uh, entities uh, if they're economically repressed. Right. How much were you aware of Bitcoin? Were you already aware? Yeah, I've been. Uh, I'm. I'm a software engineer, so uh, yeah, I'm aware, aware of technology. Uh, um, I've been working a little bit with the blockchain, but I've never been crypto enthusiast. I never believed in it as the stable currency because, like, um, the, the exchange rate of Bitcoin. Is floating uh, up and down mm-hmm. uh, like a roller coaster. So I never believed it till this summer. <laughs> yeah, till this summer. Well, that's cha- yeah. Once once you get to use it for for a certain purpose, it does change things. Okay, Alex, do you want to? You've explained to this to me in the past, but do you want to explain how uh, Bisol and are using Bitcoin right now? Well, well, just a yeah. Also, a bit of background. Um, okay, so people are withdrawing their money from bank accounts, like across Belarus, uh, like sort of like in mass, right? Um, also, the ce- and the central bank at the same time is running out of liquidity. So there's like an economic collapse happening inside Belarus is, is, is the background here. And um, from a macro perspective, we can also see from exchanges like Paxful that all of a sudden there is also now all of a sudden a premium on Bitcoin. So as of a few days ago, there was a $2,500 USD premium on Bitcoin inside Belarus. Wow. So the average Bitcoin price was around 13,000 US at the end of last week, whereas obviously the price here or wherever else is, was around 10,500 US. So there's this huge demand for Bitcoin inside of Belarus right now. It, sorry, just to interject, is that because yeah. essentially there's a run on the bank and there's a fear of a currency collapse? Uh, there is both of those things. I mean, again, okay. people are withdrawing their money from banks and the central government is is struggling to prop up the central banks with reserves. Its reserves are disappearing. Uh, last month, the government lost more than a billion dollars of reserves. So its reserves are dwindling closer to zero and people are demanding their money. And as we all know, with the fractional reserve banking system and how it works, not all of their money is there and they're, they're obviously going to be bank runs. Mm-hmm. So people are converting some of their money into Bitcoin and there's a high demand, um, which creates liquidity, which is really good for what I'm about to describe, which is that because Bitcoin is now being used more and people are aware of it, uh, we are now able to send Bitcoin to people, uh, you know, as this like sort of global permissionless medium of exchange, and they're able to easily convert it into Belarusian rubles. Like, like there's people who are very happy to buy the Bitcoin from them once we send it to them. And four rubles and the whole process uh, takes 
you know, minutes or, you know, hours at most. And the, the, the way, you know, I'll let Jaroslav describe it in detail, but essentially uh, what you need to know is that these people who are striking are vetted by BISOL. I mean, on Telegram, they explain who they are, what their situation is, they get documentation. And then BISOL will give them a grant of about 1,500 euros. They'll send it directly to them in, in Bitcoin. And then a lot of folks in Belarus are using this app called Trusty. There's other apps as well. That it's basically a Bitcoin wallet and they, they receive the Bitcoin and then they type in their account number, their routing number of their bank, and they sell the Bitcoin for rubles. And on the back end, what's happening is that wallet is tapping into a peer-to-peer -peer network where a Belarusian or a Russian or a Ukrainian uh, is receiving the Bitcoin and, and wiring them directly the rubles. So there's no centralized authority here. So there's no way for the government to shut this down. Even if it wanted to, they'd have to shut down the whole banking system. So this is a really remarkable way of getting money into Belarus. Whereas, you know, as human rights activists, we don't have very many other options. I mean, we could wire money to people in uh, Latvia and Poland and have them withdraw it into cash and euros and carry it across, uh, in, in, you know, into Belarus, but that's not a very safe way of doing things. So we now have like a new way of providing economic support for the democracy movement. Um, and it's been kind of amazing to watch, basically. According to BISOL, they've sent more than 350,000 euros uh, in, you know, into Belarus in this way over the last uh, couple months. Uh, it's, yesterday it was for 403,000 euros already. Wow. Yeah, so they, they, they raised close to 2 million euros. Uh, you know, they've raised almost, you know, close to 2 million euros you know, so far, and it's amazing to see that such a large percentage of it has actually been sent in and 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 spent on keeping the protest movement alive and on keeping the strikes alive. And Bitcoin is is the the preferred and really best medium for that right now. Yeah. So Yaroslav, Alex mentioned grants of fifteen hundred dollars. Do you know what the, about the average wage is in Belarus? Monthly wage in dollars? Uh, that's a uh, national legend. Uh, the average. Uh, which have to be 500. Okay. Uh, so Lukashenko, Lukashenko is promising this 500 since early 2000s. Uh, he reaches the, this number from time to time uh, before the election usually, but then um, Belarusian ruble devolves and uh, the salary again falls down to 300 350 something like that so uh, we've uh, we, we've made it 1500 uh, because that's like three months wage uh, which give which gives uh, people space to find a new job or to attend some uh, i don't know programming courses or something like that and like give them a chance to start a new life so the people you've been providing the grants to, um, have what kind of what's it been like for them teaching them about Bitcoin, helping them understand it, um, getting them set up on the technology? Any any hurdles you've had to get people over? Um, we are trying to keep it as simple as possible. So we basically teaching them how to install the the, the wallet, uh, how to link their bank account to this wallet, uh, and how to sell bitcoins or if they want. To buy bitcoins later, uh, if they earn their some of their own money, um, so we're just teaching them how to operate with the wallet. So uh, we are not diving deep into blockchain technology and how it works and why it works. So we didn't do it. We, we start with simple stuff, uh, and it works quite good. You know, uh, 
right after the election, first three or four days, Lukashenko shut down all of the internet in Belarus. Yeah, and uh, like all of the people all around the country, they've learned how to use VPN and proxy servers. And exactly that's exactly the same it works here. So we just teach them how to use crypto wallet, how to receive Bitcoins, how to sell them for Belarus rubles, and that's it. And you were saying that like you've taught all these people how to do this and no one has kind of given up in frustration. Like everybody that you, you've given the money yeah, to has figured yeah, it yeah. out. Yeah. So, you know, oftentimes, Peter, in this industry, uh, you get a lot of like armchair, pe- armchair observers saying, oh, it's too hard to use. And it's like, well, when people actually have to use it, they figure it out. Don't, underest- don't underestimate, you know, the average person. I mean, the stuff at this point is not that hard to figure out. It's not that much harder to figure out than using Instagram or using Twitter, right. you know, at the end of the day. It's a phone app. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the people who says that sometimes as well. <laughs> um, but it fe- feels to me like, Alex, the use case here is a little bit more on the, it's it's solving a it's solving a specific problem, giving people access to money. It's a little, it's a little less on the, oh, learn about Bitcoin, save Bitcoin, back up your private keys kind of situation. This feels a lot more like Correct. there's a specific, uh, this is providing specific f- support for the protests themselves. This is a this is a uh, you know a situation where people under duress in a difficult political climate are relying on Bitcoin's uh, censorship resistance and permissionlessness, and they are uh, receiving money from abroad in a way that the government cannot stop, and they are converting it into rubles in a way that the government cannot stop, and you know that is what is important right now. And again, this is like Bitcoin as a bridge between monies. It's a way for me with dollars to support someone in Belarus who uses rubles in a way that takes, you know, you know, minutes uh, and and is not possible to stop. Second, it, but but also as Yaroslav is saying, and as we're seeing macro-wise on the demand in these local markets, uh, people are also uh, beginning to convert their rubles, which are deteriorating, collapsing, and we don't know what the ruble is going to be worth in three months. We have no idea. Um, and they're converting it into Bitcoin, right, as sort of this speculative store of value. So you're kind of seeing both use cases unfold here. Uh, Yaroslav, how how widespread is the knowledge of Bitcoin? Is is this still quite niche within the protests, or is this something like a lot of people are now talking about? Uh, It's spreading. Like when people hear that they can receive money via Bitcoins, they're obviously interested and they start to Google. And like more people receive it, uh, more they know about it. But it was mentioning that that's just the first step we're using here because now I'm a big fan of the technology and the opportunities it brings. Uh, so that's just, just the first step to use uh, Bitcoins as a transport from euros outside of Belarus into Belarus and rubles inside of Belarus. But now we actually uh, start building a, a platform and uh, the, the blockchain platform, uh, which allow to build uh, like a digital ID, which uh, will allow people, first of all, vote uh, online uh, for some initiatives we, we want to run in Belarus. And then uh, we will try to build some kind of uh, crypto economy, because if it's working safer than uh, the standard currency in Belarus, and it's more stable, uh, and it gives an, us an opportunity to build 
like a global Belarusian uh, economy uh, where all of the Belarusians all around the world could be involved and they can donate or buy something or pay for some um, service in Belarus. That gives us a huge opportunity. And I also think what's important to note here is that uh, this is not reliant on a charity or, you know, some governmental, you know, UN agency providing aid. Uh, where there, where we have to think about altruism and giving, the liquidity and the availability for me to send Bitcoin and that person to use it is reliant on capitalism and greed and markets and profits. Like, like th- there is, it's much more resilient than you know the EU getting together and saying, "Hey, we're going to give the Belarusian people a certain amount of money," because those are bureaucrats and they could change their mind tomorrow. Mm-hmm. This is very different. This is like an unstoppable phenomenon where we can send this money in and it can be converted because people are making money off of it and, and, and they want to convert it. So in that way, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's really fascinating to look at as a, as sort of this unstoppable phenomenon. And I would note that obviously Belarus is very different from many other countries around the world in that again, people are almost everybody has a smartphone and it's a very wired country. There's a lot of technology companies coming out of Belarus. A lot of these companies, there's a huge IT sector, so, you know, maybe we shouldn't use it as a proxy for like Libya or the Congo. Um, but in this particular case, uh, people, as Yaroslav is saying, are, are, are very quick to learn about how they can receive and sell and buy Bitcoin. And they're not going to forget it. Like, in, you know, it's not like, let's say the revolution happens and, and actually we, you know, by some miracle, there is a democratic transition. It's not like people are going to forget about this censorship resistant, you know, permissionless money afterwards like it'll remain in their minds so it'll be really interesting to see what happens from here well and alex look this is something you've been talking about for a long time ever since i've known you how bitcoin can help uh, people in these situations and actually you're now seeing it play out in real time it must be quite validating for you to see well it's only something i've been saying because i've been observing it i mean before belarus there was I was seeing people get their wealth out of China. I mean, I was seeing people yeah. get their wealth out of Venezuela. I was, you know, we were supporting people in different countries in the Middle East through this. I mean, you're watching, there's just so many stories around the world. So um, yeah, it's it's great to see people learn about this tool, which is open to everybody. You know, you don't need an ID to use this thing. And it's, it's important that people know about this tool and have it in their uh, toolbox as they fight dictators in the future. I think it'll be, you know, it's again, it's just a tool. I mean, the people are doing the work here and there's this remarkable bravery and millions of people fighting for the future of their country and they could very well fail. Um, but at the end of the day, we sometimes underestimate how important money and, and economics and finance is in all of this. And to have an ability to, to provide people a lifeline like BISOL is doing and to do it in a way that's beyond the control of governments and corporations is a new thing for humanity and it, it, it is a it is a big challenge for dictators and, and it's a big help for democracy movements. And, you know, people are only going to start to understand that more and more and more. It's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. All right, Yaroslav, before we close out, is there anything else you would want to tell people who are listening to this? Yeah, please donate to Belarusian Solidarity Fund with your Bitcoins. <laughs> All right, well, listen, I will put that in the show notes. Alex, is there any way you want to direct people to to find out more about this? Yeah, I mean, if you want to learn about uh, our uh, cooperation with Bisol, we have a, uh, you can put it in the show notes, but we have a URL that we've created 
I'll just type it here. It's called defendbelarus.fundraise.org. And it explains um, what we're doing on our side with the fund. It shows how much we've raised. Uh, and quite a bit of that is going to Bysol. And then Bysol has their own sort of Facebook page, which you can also go in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, get involved. I mean, look, this is an opportunity for, I think, Bitcoiners who believe in the revolutionary power of it to to put their book Bitcoin to, to good use and to change the world in a small way by supporting a Belarusian who's, who's made that brave decision to strike against a country and a regime that's reliant on the state-controlled economy and to give that revolution a little more breathing room. And they can do it with this technology that they've become really interested in. So I hope that the Bitcoin community can take a look at this and decide to you know, make a difference in this area. So that's, that's our hope. Amazing. Well, listen, look, all the best, Yaroslav. Uh, I wish you all the best. I hope you get your peaceful transfer of power. I've never been to Belarus, so um, hopefully I'll get over there at some point and come and visit the country. But... You're very welcome uh, after it all ends. Yeah, well, and hopefully when the planes are flying. <laughs> I, I'll be on the first flight to Minsk once the uh, regime falls. So. Yeah, we'll, we'll both head out there, Alex. Uh, yeah, the, the goal, Yaroslav, is for uh, HRF to be able to organize with you in the future a uh, Oslo Freedom Forum in Minsk. That's, that's great. the real goal. Great. Well I'll, yeah. I'll, well, I'll definitely come. <laughs> It'll be a beautiful yeah. day. And I'll definitely come to that. All right, guys. Well, listen, look, thanks for joining me for this. Um, I'll get this out as soon as possible. I really want people to hear this interview. Uh, I think it's fascinating what's happening. Alex, you know I love your work. And Yaroslav, I wish you the best. If there's anything I can do for you, please do reach out to me. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Thanks for providing a platform, Peter. Take care. All right. What do you think of that one? Do you enjoy that show? You know what? They don't always do as well as some of the shows about number go up and or the economic shows, but these shows are really important. This is what gives Bitcoin value. It is its censorship-resistant properties, and its censorship-resistant properties are what is being used to help people in Belarus now. The government can't stop this. They can attack protesters. They can inflict violence upon them. They can put them in jail. They can torture them. But what they can't do is they can't stop Bitcoin. They can't stop people putting Bitcoin in the hands of the people who are striking to attack the infrastructure. And this is, you know, important to Bitcoin. As I said, this is what gives Bitcoin value is that it can do this. Without censorship resistance, we don't have anything. So listen, I'm really glad to do the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do share this one out. I think people should be listening to shows like this. It is important. And if you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Always love hearing from you. And I do pretty much reply to everyone. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, can you go and leave me a review on iTunes? I asked people to do this recently. And do you know what? I saw this week I got a bunch more reviews. So thank you so much for doing that. It only takes two minutes to go over and do that. But yes, it really helps the show. And also, my other show, Defiance, is going really well right now. We've got this new series about Ghislaine Maxwell. She was the ex-partner of disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. We're doing a deep dive research into that. Episode 3 just came out. It's called The Israeli Connection. It's very, very interesting. So if you want to check that out, that's at defiance.news. And also, if you want to reach out to me, as I said, my email address is hello at bitcoindid.com. And yeah, have a great week, and I'll see you all soon.